All right, as you're having a seat, please turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians, chapter 1. Uh, we're we're going to review real quickly. If you were not here uh, last week, this is uh, new to you. If you were, um, then this is just review. But we uh, gave you a little challenge last week for the semester. This is our semester challenge, okay? Initiate spiritual conversations with at least two people who are far from Jesus. So, uh, you remember, even the Apostle Paul prayed for boldness. Even the Apostle Paul said, hey, uh, this is intimidating to me at times to speak up on the name of, uh, in the name of Christ, which uh, really encourages me that even Paul asked for that prayer. So we're praying that God would give us courage and boldness. And imagine if each and every one of us took the initiative at least twice this semester. And I'm, I, I just cannot help but believe that if we did it twice, we'd go, oh my gosh, yeah, that was spooky, but how awesome that I was able to engage someone who doesn't know Jesus and help them move toward him, right? That, that's, that's why we're here, church. Uh, as we said last week, the mission of the church is the Great Commission. Churches don't get to choose their mission. doesn't matter what their denomination or the culture in which they live. Our mission is always, as a church, capital C, universal, the Great Commission. That is to make disciples of all nations. So uh, we said it simply like this. Right? We help people find and follow Jesus. Church, that's what we do. There are other things that we do. We're going to sing worship songs, as we just did this morning. We pray together. We study the word. But as it has been noted, all of those things, we will do better in heaven for eternity. But right now, we have the opportunity, right? A short window of time in which we can share the love of Jesus Christ with those who don't know him. So imagine that you know someone who's just trusted in Christ, and you want to begin to help them follow Jesus. Uh, Ephesians is not a bad place to start. That's what we're going to be studying this semester. And Ephesians, is, it's a short book, but it is really dense with uh, doctrine and practical application. In fact, it's a great book to study because uh, it also breaks down really easily. You can see Paul's flow of thought. First three chapters are all about, in a sense, uh, our, our beliefs, uh, what's true of us, and the last three about our behaviors or the implications. Or you could say our riches that we have in Jesus Christ and then our responsibilities that we have toward him. Right? The, the book just flows really nicely. It talks a lot about Jesus Christ and who he is. It talks about uh, a little bit about end times. Uh, we'll talk about uh, marriage, we'll talk about spiritual gifts and spiritual warfare. But ultimately, the book of Ephesians is about us. Okay, Ephesians is about the church. And so uh, we've titled it Alive Together because in a sense what you have in the first three chapters is the life that we have in Christ. We were dead and separated and now we are alive in Christ. And the second half of the book is what does that look like for us to live out our life in Christ together as a church in front of literally the angelic hosts who are watching and a world that is fallen and broken and needs Jesus. And so that's where we're going this morning we're going to start in uh, chapter 1, but I want to begin with giving you just like a really quick uh, background quiz. Just one question, right? So the Apostle Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. Peter wrote two letters in the New Testament. How many letters did Jesus write? How many letters did Jesus write? It's a trick question. Yeah, he actually wrote seven Remember at the beginning of the book of Revelation, John records the seven letters that Jesus sent to the seven churches, right? So I just, I thought that'd be tricky. You know, um, yeah, he wrote seven letters. Remember where the first letter was? Where'd he send his first letter? T- 
to the church in Ephesus, right? I give you a clue on that one, to church in Ephesus, right? That was the first letter because the church in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, was a central city for all of Asia Minor. It was one of the most important cities, in fact, in all of the first century Roman Empire. It's located uh, in modern-day Turkey. It was called Asia Minor at the time, and it was, uh, it was a crossroads, right? The major trade routes came into this port city, and it, it said that, in a sense, all roads led from Ephesus. So it was, in a sense, a, a waypoint or a bridge between Asia and Europe. Culturally, it was very diverse. People of all kinds of languages were speaking in that place. So if you want to try and get yourself in the mindset of, of being a citizen of Ephesus, imagine that you live as a small, tiny Christian minority in a city like New York or London or Singapore. In other words, it was really, really hard to be a Christian in Ephesus. It was really, really difficult. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, go to Ephesus with Blake and with Chris McGuffey. And uh, one of the first things that you will notice as you walk through the city is that it was a very idolatrous city. So everywhere you turn, you will see a carved relief or a, a statue or the ruins of a temple to some god. This is the goddess uh, Nike, or as we call her in Texas, Nike. This is Nike, goddess of... Uh, Victory, uh, Hermes, who was the messenger of the God, God of the um, shepherds and of, of good fortune. All right, but this is the most important goddess. This is a small representation, a replica of the statue to um, Artemis. Okay, Artemis of the Ephesians. And Artemis was a uh, goddess of fertility and life. You can see her represented there with multiple breasts. Her, her uh, temple was actually one of the seven wonders of the world. So right alongside of the pyramids, her temple was actually uh, 400 feet long and 200 feet wide. So imagine Kyle Field and then stretch it another 100 feet in length. Had 127 marble columns that were 60 feet high. This was absolutely massive. And her worship in Ephesus was really not optional. It was a centerpiece really in a sense of, of the whole culture of the place. So every year, they would have a, a festival to Artemis, and they would take her original statue, which apparently was carved from a meteorite that they believed had been sent down from the heavens to them. They carved the statue, and they would pick it up on the festival day, and they would march her in procession down to the harbor, and they would wash her off to restore her fertility, and then they bring her back. And in the midst of all this, there was a festival, and it was it was. The drunkenness and orgies and all kinds of immorality. And if you were a part of the city, you were expected to participate in this. So it was a very, very immoral place. So Christians are surrounded with this idolatry. They were surrounded with all forms of immorality. A little difficult maybe for us to read this street sign, but there in the main thoroughfare, there's a carved marble uh, stone path. And you'll notice here the footway. This is an advertisement and directions to the brothel. The brothel wasn't on the outskirts of town. The brothel was right in the very middle of town. If you conducted any business in town, you would go by the brothel. So you had idolatry, and there was immorality, and there was incredible demonism. Right? The worship of, of magic arts. You recall that um, when Paul went into Ephesus and he began to preach, and people began to trust Christ, that they brought their magic books 
We're told they burned them and that the value of the books that were burned was 50,000 pieces of silver. Okay, so they had a lot of magic books in their home, right? One of the uh, foremost commentators on the New Testament, Bruce Metzger, wrote this. He said, of all the ancient Greco-Roman cities, Ephesus, the third largest city in the empire, was by far the most hospitable to magicians, sorcerers, and charlatans of all sorts. But by far the most difficult aspect of life for a Christian in Ephesus was uh, emperor worship. At Ephesus was designated uh, Neokoros, which was a special designation that the Senate gave to a few cities around its empire that were centers of emperor worship, right? Every, every city was expected to have a temple or two to the emperor. But for the, the Ephesians, this was really central to their culture. It was part of their very identity. They ended up having this designation given to them twice, one for uh, Augustus and then later for Domitian. And so right after this was written, a few years, when Domitian became the emperor, he erected a statue to himself that was like 60 to 70 feet tall. When you came into the city, there was Domitian with his fist raised, looking over the city, and he absolutely and utterly hated Christians. He hated Christians. So I want to visually, in a sense, kind of walk you through the city. This is the, the main thoroughfare. So as you're coming into the city, out of the hills, from the north, you would see first on your left, you'd see all the houses of the very, very wealthy people. Then immediately all across the street, there was a temple to the emperor Trajan. And then you would see a little further down the bathhouse. See at the end of the street, the Celsus Library, which was one of the greatest libraries in the world at that point in time. And as you faced the Celsus Library, the road would turn to the right and you would see up on the hill right next to the bathhouse would be the brothel. And you'd turn past the library And you would face the gates that would go into the agora or the marketplace. This is a picture of the marketplace. But you couldn't get into the marketplace until you first went through the gates. And at the gates you were expected to take a pinch of incense and make an offering to the emperor. The agora was the center not only of commerce but also of, of all of culture and society. And if you wanted to get in, in a sense, be a citizen in good standing, every time you went in you were to make an offering to the emperor. And so Christians were tested every day. Would they compromise their faith or not? Because to be outside of the agora, outside of the marketplace, to be viewed in a sense as not in good standing with the Roman empire was to be shunned from Roman society or from, from Ephesian society. So Christians were constantly suffering. They were constantly persecuted. In fact, Paul's final letter after he had sent his beloved Timothy to pastor this church in Ephesus, he wrote this to him. He said, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel according to or consistent with the power of God. Timothy, I've sent you to people in Ephesus that I dearly love. Remember, Paul had helped establish this church. He had spent uh, almost three years teaching and training and discipling. He loved these people, but he also knew that they were suffering and that if you sent Timothy into their midst, Timothy would suffer. So I want you to imagine for a moment, what would you write if you were in prison and you were writing to a group of friends who were in a city in which as they live for Jesus, increasingly they were marginalized, right? You're suffering, you're in prison and you're writing to friends who are also suffering, Because as they follow Jesus Christ, they're further and further out of step with their culture. It sounds a little bit like 
what we experience here in this country, right? Increasingly, as you follow Jesus Christ, you're more and more and more at the margins of this culture. So what would you write? What would be your words of encouragement? Well, you know what Paul said to these people? He said, uh, you're blessed. But you may not feel blessed, but in fact, you are blessed. You may feel like your property is being taken away and your freedoms and you're not fitting in with the culture, but in fact, you are enriched with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. You are rich. This is the starting point for Paul's word of encouragement and exhortation to a people that are suffering. You may not feel it, but you are. You're rich in spiritual blessings from Jesus Christ. In fact, every spiritual blessing that God can bestow upon a people from heaven, God has given to you. Okay, so let's begin Ephesians chapter 1 and read verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, To the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, I just read the first three verses, but I want to make a note that the first 14 verses are actually all one sentence. (laughs) Paul Paul just started talking about the riches that we have in Christ and he just couldn't stop. Right? I remember like when our kids would be little and they'd run in from outside and they're excited to tell us something. They're out of breath and they just go and they never stop and they don't take a breath. And they, it's one long run-on sentence. This is a 14-verse single sentence. Now, for English readers, it's been broken up into lots of sentences. But Paul just goes off because Paul understood something. He said, let me start at this place. I know that you're suffering, but I don't want to talk about that yet. What I want to do is I want to encourage you to be grateful people and thankful people because you're rich in Christ. In other words, Paul understood something that I think in in our generation we're, in a sense, really just now figuring out. And that is that to be grateful and to be thankful is really actually very good for you, even when you're suffering. A few years ago, I came across a study that was reported in Forbes magazine about seven scientifically proven benefits for gratitude. You want to hear them? Yes, you do. I'm going to tell you anyway. Okay, here you go. Seven benefits. First, It leads to better relationships. Gratitude, a thankful heart, leads to better relationships. It improves your physical health. It improves your psychological health. It increases empathy and reduces aggression. It helps you sleep better. It improves your self-esteem. It increases your mental strength. Paul says, I know that you're suffering, but here's the best place to start. Let's praise God or let's bless God for the fact that he has given us everything that heaven has to offer in Jesus Christ. And one of the things you're going to notice as we look at the book of Ephesians is that it's a, it's a Trinitarian book. And from the very first, what Paul says is, Father, Son, and Spirit are all joining together to do good for you, to enrich you. So let's begin with the Father. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Paul says, the Father has chosen you. You belong to God. In fact, God chose you to be a part of his family before you even existed. God chose you to be part of his family, in fact, before anything existed, before the foundation of the world, which is a Hebrew statement for creation. That is, When there was only God, there was nothing else, only God, Father, Son, and Spirit said to one another, we want you. We want you. 
And so God chose you, God marked you out beforehand for himself. Why? Two reasons, okay, two purposes. Notice, verse 4, it says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. That is, God chose us so that we would be like him. Knowing that he would make us in his image, he knew that we would only be satisfied, really, if we reflected that image in his righteousness and his justice and his holiness and his kindness and his grace. God chose us to be holy. Second reason, because God loves family and he wanted a family for himself. Verse 5, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. God chose you, and then a synonym, God predestined you, literally God marked you out for adoption. That is that you would be brought into his family because, as he'll talk about in chapter 2, you're born outside of the family of God, running away from God, but God wanted you to be brought into his family so that he could form family for himself because God loves family. So God loves. Now, I know for some of you, when you, you hear even the idea of family reunion, you go, oh, God, please, no. I don't want to be with those people. And you don't have to nod your head or anything, but I know that some of you feel that way, right? Don't, don't nod. But God wants to make a family in which we all delight in one another. All right, so imagine a family reunion that you get to come to in which everyone is kind and everyone's giving and everyone's forgiving, right? And they're creative and engaging and, and funny, and it's just a delight. And you say, gosh, can we have this every year? We need to be together. God chose you and marked you out beforehand so that he could create for himself a family that would love to be together and delight to be together. And what he's doing right now in the church is he's trying to move us that direction, Right, that we would learn to love each one, another, love one another, just little by little, so that the world would look in. They go, "I'd like to be a part of that family. I'd love to be a part of, of a group of people who love one another." That was God's goal for marking us out ahead of time, and ultimately, God's purpose, I would argue, was to show off who He is. Verse six. I know it sounds kind of strange, but verse six, He says, "To the praise of the glory of His grace." which he freely bestowed on us and the beloved. In other words, Paul says, the ultimate purpose of all this is so that God could show off who he is. When people show off, it's because there's some insecurity in them, but when God shows off, what he's trying to show is grace. What's the essence of the very nature of the heart of God, his character? It's that God loves to give and give and give, and then when he's given so much, he keeps on giving and giving and giving. God is showing off his grace by collecting a group of people for himself to be his family. Now, let's talk for a moment about this doctrine. Paul uses two words here that are enormously significant, election and predestination. But Paul, Paul didn't bring these words up to create philosophical discussion and debate and conflict that has so often divided believers and divided churches. In fact, he brought these words up and this doctrine up so the church would be reminded how much God actually loves us that before time, was even be- time to even began, God would want us to be a part of his family, right? So he didn't bring it up for controversy, but for comfort. So I want to give you some, some surrounding biblical truths to help us understand the nature of God's choice of us before time began, okay? A few ideas to put this in a broader biblical context. The first is this. Election is true. God chose us before time began. But it is also true that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all sins, for all people, 
for all time. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. John writes, He himself, that is Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. In other words, Jesus didn't die just for the elect. Jesus died for every man, every woman, every child that would ever exist. Right? And, and he, John uses some vocabulary that we don't normally use. Propitiation. What is that? Well, it's, it's wrath. It's satisfaction of wrath. That is, God hates sin. And so he must pour out his wrath and his anger against sin in his perfect holiness. But Jesus Christ is the one who takes that wrath for us. Right? So God pours out his wrath against our sin in Jesus rather than pouring it out against us. That's the propitiation or the satisfaction of the wrath of God against our sin has been taken upon Jesus. And John says, not for ours only, church, but in fact, for the sins of the whole world. That is, in John's theology, the world is everyone who hates God and rejects God. Jesus died for them. So you can with confidence walk up to any person and initiate a spiritual conversation and say, I know that Jesus died for you. I know that Jesus died for you. He died for you because he loves you and he wants you to be in a relationship with him. Okay, that's the second truth. God wants every person to be in a relationship with him. First Timothy chapter 2. Paul writes, God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the heart of God. All will not believe, but God wants all to believe. Or as God says in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33, I take no delight in the destruction of the wicked, rather that the wicked would repent and turn and be rescued and saved. So God's saying, I'm begging you, turn from sin and be rescued. So Jesus died for all. Payment of sin has been made. God wants all people to be in relationship with him. Third truth is that all are invited, okay, freely, openly, to enter into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Revelation 22, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And the one who hears, let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I love it that this is how the New Testament ends. This is how the Bible ends. The Bible ends with an invitation. The Spirit of God is crying out to humanity and saying, come. But also, the bride, which is the church, is joining with the Spirit, calling out to all people, come. Come, drink of the water of life without cost. Eternal life is an absolutely free gift. You don't deserve it. You don't merit it. But God has paid the penalty for your sin, removing that barrier between you and God. So come, come freely, drink of that water. It is an absolutely free gift. Take it. And that offer is made to anyone and everyone. Verse we have memorized, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, or in other words, God loved the world this much, like this. That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whosoever will, come and drink. So, Jesus paid the penalty for all sins. God desires all to be in relationship with him. All are invited to join in, but everyone has to make a choice. God is absolutely sovereign, and God knows all things. But every person still must make a choice, and everyone is responsible for that choice. All right, so we've memorized John 3.16, but probably a few of us have memorized John 3.18, which says this. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In other words, there will be no one who is separated from God because they were non-elect. 
Are you tracking with me? There's no one separated from God because they're non-elect. People are separated from God because they choose not to believe. They choose to reject the light that God gives them that would draw them to Jesus Christ. And if we have a proper biblical worldview, what we understand about humanity is that everyone's running away from God. Right? There's none righteous. There's none who's seeking after God. In fact, the entire mass of humanity would rather worship anything but God. That's what Romans 1 is all about. All right, Paul says, uh, you know, you might look out on all the world religions and say, oh, people are seeking after God. They want to know God. That's why they're creating all these religions. And Paul says, no, the invention of all these religions demonstrates that people would rather, rather worship anything but God, even themselves. And so God, in his kindness, reaches after humanity that's running after him, and he grabs some and he pulls them back to himself. And the question that comes to my mind is, why? Why me? Why did, why did God choose me? Am I, am I better than my neighbor? And the answer is no, because before creation, before I existed, it's not as if God looked down the quarters of time and said, well, some are a little more worthy than others. Instead, he saw humanity running away from him and he reached out and he grabbed me in his mercy and kindness. Why me, not my neighbor? It's not because I'm any better than my neighbor. It's a, it's a question I simply can't answer. All that I know is this. Throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, it says God is sovereign. He knows all things. He has all power and he has the right to do with his creation what he will. But God is also kind and gracious and he's just and everything that he does is right and true. He is sovereign and his creatures are responsible. And how do you put the two together? I don't know. But I'm comforted by the fact that the Apostle Paul didn't know either. Right? Romans 9 through 11. Paul goes on this long discourse about sovereignty of God the responsibility of the Jews to respond. And at the end, he doesn't get philosophical and he doesn't say, here's how we weave the two together. Instead, he just stops and he worships. Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. The greatest theologian that has ever lived says, I don't know. God is absolutely sovereign and men are responsible for their choices. And I trust in the kindness and the goodness and the justice of God. Can we have a moment to worship? That's what he says. Right? So it drives him to worship. It drives him to gratitude. It doesn't drive him to the- philosophical uh, conversations and arguments. It just drives him to worship. But it also drives him to one other thing. It drives him to have a passion to share the gospel. He says, I I don't know who's elect and who's not elect, and I don't understand God's decrees and counsels that he has set from all of eternity, and so I need to share the gospel with absolutely everyone. As he tells the believers in Corinth, we beg people on behalf of Jesus Christ, please be reconciled to God because Jesus has paid for your sins. Please come freely. Paul says, it drives me to share the gospel with everything that moves and everything that breathes. I want him to know Jesus. And church, it should drive us to the same. We were to say, God, thank you. Thank you that you've chosen us. God, I don't understand your counsel, but please let him be chosen. Let her be chosen. Give me a moment, an opportunity to speak the words of life about Jesus Christ to that man or that woman, that child. Let them experience the blessings that you have provided through Jesus Christ. Okay, so first, Paul says, let us praise God because the Father has chosen us and take comfort in that. Second, the Son has redeemed us. Verse 7. The beloved is Jesus, and in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness 
of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And some of you know uh, my family moved around a lot growing up, which meant uh, I was always the new kid. So, um, you know, the cafeteria was a rough place, right? In class, you're sitting where you're uh, supposed to be. You're just looking forward, listening, not talking to your friends, listening to the teacher, or at least theoretically. But then you go to lunch, you're supposed to be sitting with your friends. Uh, but I didn't have any friends a lot of times. So I'm just the new kid. I'm trying to break in. I want to be, I want to be included. I want to be accepted. And one of the things that I learned is that uh, kids don't include or accept other kids out of love. <laughs> there's, there's no mercy or kindness or grace or compassion. They don't include other kids out of love. If you get included, it's because you can bring something to the group, right? Maybe your mom packs a great lunch and you're willing just to give it all away so you can make some friends, right? Oh yeah, sure. Brian, come sit with us. What do you got today, right? So you, you're, you're giving something, you're, or maybe you're good at math and you can do their homework for them, right? Or you're, you're good at athletics. So yeah, you can be on our team because you're going to help the team. Or you're funny. Come on, sit here and tell a joke, right? So you have to bring some value or you don't get included, But in the family of God, really, there's nothing that we bring that God needs. God is complete in and of himself. And so he includes us because of his mercy, his pity on us, his compassion and his grace and kindness. And he does that through the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. So Paul uses two words here. He redeemed us. And he forgave us our sins. And both of those words in Greek have a very clear connotation. And that is, he rescued us from slavery. He rescued us from domination by deadly forces. He he released us from bondage. Now, normally we don't go through our days thinking of ourselves as slaves. But the fact is we were born enslaved to sin and enslaved to death. Romans chapter 7, Paul says this. He says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Right? Paul's talking about just the power of temptation, particularly the power of, of covetousness. He says, you know, I looked at all the laws and I obeyed all those laws, but then I read that one about coveting. And it actually just made me want more. Because that's what coveting means, literally. It means to have more. And I realized I'm actually not content. I'm discontent. I need more, I need more, I need more. Need more of this or more of that. And he felt enslaved. He said, how, how can I get free from this enslavement to temptation and sin? And, I mean, who can't, who can't relate to that? But that thought that just keeps coming in your mind and you can't make it stop. Or that attitude, that longing or that lust or that behavior that you do with your body or with your mind or with your heart or your spirit. And, and you're longing for that. And Paul says, who will set me free from the body of this death? And then chapter 8, he says, it's the Spirit of God. Because you have the Spirit of God, you can in fact say no to temptation and to sin. And you don't have to live enslaved any longer because of Jesus Christ. Not only that, you don't have to fear death any longer, which is inevitable for all people. But you don't have to fear it because you've been rescued from the penalty of sin, consequently the power of sin in your life daily. But also your future is security of life forever because of Jesus Christ. In the book of Hebrews, the writer said, The Son, that is Jesus, became flesh, that through his death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. 
And they were just running and running and running and trying to create distractions in their lives so they wouldn't think about death or trying to be good enough so that they could get into heaven in the end. And so they constantly lived under fear. But now, church, we don't live with that because we've been rescued, we've been redeemed from sin and temptation and slavery. We're rescued by the blood of Jesus Christ. And why did he do it? Verse 7. Again, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Isn't that great language? It's the riches of his grace that he just poured out, and he just kept pouring and pouring and pouring because that's the nature of the grace of God. He just gives and he gives and he gives. Abundantly overflowing. Let me illustrate. Uh, I love Mexican food. Uh, I like other ethnic foods as well, but honestly, I could eat Mexican food pretty much every day. Um, I love tacos, and I love enchiladas, and I love queso, and, and I love uh, guacamole. I just, I, I just I like Mexican food, and my wife gets kind of tired of them. Like, let's yeah, we can go to Torchies again. I'm right. I just I like Mexican food or Freebirds or Fuzzy. I know every Mexican food restaurant here in town. That's right. I got a thumbs up. Thanks, bro. I agree. Yeah, but you know, here here's the thing. So every once in a while, I wander into a Mexican food restaurant. And, and they charge me for chips and salsa. I'm like, so I know, right? I, I mean, this, like, this is Texas. This is, I think that it should, it should be illegal, right? It should be a crime. It's a crime against humanity that you would think that you have the right to charge me for chips and salsa in a Mexican restaurant. I go, seriously, like, if you wander into Chili's, you go, okay, well, that's just Americana stuff, and you charge me whatever. I'm just not going to order it. But if I go into a Mexican restaurant and you're charging me for chips and salsa, I just don't get that. When I go in there, I figure, I figure when they see me walking in, that chips and salsa are already on the table, right? They don't even ask me. They're not going to charge me. And, and I'm, I'm just I'm piling through all that, and, and I should never get down to the crumbs. I, before, when I'm getting down that low, right? They're bringing bags out already and it's just, and some fall on the table and that's okay, right? And my salsa bowl is huge and I'm never scraping at the bottom. In fact, I get my own bowl, right? I don't, I don't have to share with any of you people. I got my own bowl that's always full. I go, you know, salsa upon salsa, chip upon chip, right? That's, that's grace. That's how I, that's what I, what I want in life, right? That's, that's how life should be, right? That grace upon grace, Upon grace, I know it's a silly illustration, but what God gives to you is overflowing. It's coming out of the bowl. And Paul's just scrambling to find the language to express the kindness that God has expressed toward us and given to us in Jesus Christ. It's more than we we could expect, more than we could imagine, more than we could hope for. He has lavished his riches upon us in Jesus Christ. But wait, there's more. Verse 8, he lavished all this upon us. Then, in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. Now, that's another long part of his sentence to describe the church. In chapters 2 and 3, he's going to completely unpack this doctrine of how God is bringing all of his plans to completion through the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is the foundation. He's the cornerstone. 
who is the groom and we are the bride. And all things are being summed up in him. And we get it. Church, God has revealed to us why we're here. Why we exist. We're special. We're unique. We're, We're unlike any other organization in the world. We're unlike anything God has ever done in salvation history for all for all of human history, we're special and we're unique. And there's a reason that we're here. We're here to help people find and follow Jesus. We get life. We know our purpose, right? It's not just that we know that we have forgiveness of sins and we have eternal life. We have purpose in life. So all of our daily interactions and our job and, our, and with friends and, and, and in our hobbies, all these things have this enormous transcendent meaning because we can call people up in these relationships to have eternal life in Jesus. We get it. I don't know about you, but I love watching people. Like I like sitting sometimes in a crowded place, whether it's in a city or sometimes uh, going down into a, a subway station or in an airport. And I begin looking at, at the wide variety. And I like imagining where they're going and what they're doing, what their lives are all about. And they have family and friends and jobs. And then I honestly, sometimes the longer I watch, I start to feel a little discouraged because I think, but how many of these people really understand why they were made. How many of these people genuinely feel loved by God and know that he sent his son to die for their sins? How many of these people are just going through the motions of, of work, just trying to stay busy so they don't have to think about important things? And it begins to break my heart. And sometimes I need that, right? I need to go and I need to have those moments where I, I realize People desperately need Jesus. They, they don't know why they live, and they don't have meaning and purpose. And that's why we're here. That's why we're here. Because we do get it. Men and women, we do understand. We do understand our purpose. And we do understand our calling. Paul says, but wait. There's even more. Verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, According to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Verse 11, actually a better translation is this. Also, we have been made into an inheritance. Okay, this is significant. It's not Paul saying here in verse 11 that we receive an inheritance. We do, and he'll talk about that more later. But what he's saying here in verse 11 is that we were actually made into an inheritance. You're what God wanted. On God's wish list, you know what's on top? You. So God made you into his inheritance. He made you into his treasured possession. Right? I think this is an allusion back to the book of Deuteronomy, what God said to the nation of Israel. He said, you are a people holy that is set apart to the Lord your God because the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, that you would be his special treasure that you would experience what it's like to be the treasure of God and being enriched, that you would want to share those riches with everyone else, that you would be blessed by me so that you could be a blessing to others and you would experience what it means to be the inheritance of God. And then Peter will pick up this exact same language and he'll say to the church, you are a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, that you would be the treasured possession of God in Jesus Christ. So chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and then third, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, 
Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Paul uses two metaphors here. The first is the the word sealed. It was a mark. It was a mark of of security, of identity, of authenticity, right? A king might have a, a signet ring and he'd dip it in the wax and put it on a document it was a seal. It was a mark. It was, it was genuine. This is, this is authentic. This is from the king. Break this seal at your own risk. Because all of the strength of the king backs up this seal. It's a sense of belonging. Paul says, the spirit is your seal. He is your mark. I have a seal that I use. Uh, this is my seal that I put on uh, all of my books. And the reason I put it on all of my books is because I'm greedy. Okay, I, uh, you know, uh, everybody has their little areas of materialism or whatever. I just, I really like books and I kind of get possessive of books and, and I'll, I will loan out my books from time to time to people that I trust that they're going to return my books, but I always write it down to who borrowed what book. And then every once in a while though, I will walk into my office and I will see a hole on the shelf. And I'm not naming names of any particular staff members at this moment, but I'm just saying I'll walk in there'll be a hole on my shelf. I'm like somebody took a book. Somebody borrowed a book. But I know this, wherever that book goes anywhere in the world, it's mine. That is my book. It's got my stamp on it. Actually, for a while, I used not only my seal, but I actually got a stamp too. And like I would stamp it multiple places, maybe like on every edge of the book is, you know, this is mine. This belongs to me. It's mine, right? God says you belong to him. Stamped, sealed, punt. You know, anywhere you go in the world, no matter what happens in your life, no matter how many failures you may commit in your life, you are stamped, you are sealed, you belong to God, and you cannot be removed from him. No one can break the seal of the Spirit other than God, and he won't. You belong to him forever. Paul says, you are sealed in him. Second, he says, you are given the Spirit as a pledge, but literally it's a down payment. Literally, it's a down payment. It's used in ancient literature, just like we would use a, you want to go buy a a house, you want to buy a car, you put down some money ahead of time. Ancient literature is an inscription of a lady, she wants to buy a cow, she puts money down ahead of time. It's a down payment, meaning I will go and give the rest because this belongs to me. The spirit is a down payment. It's a deposit placed in your life. So that when God redeems, that is, collects his precious possession, you're already marked out. Now, some of you uh, dropped off your kids uh, in the nursery this morning, and so, some of you probably want to get them back. All of you want to get them back. I'm just kidding, right? You want to get them back. So when you dropped them off, what happened? Got a little system. You got a sticker. You has got two stickers. One of the stickers you stick on the back of that kid, right? Marked out. It's got the kid's name. It's got your name. And then you take the other sticker for yourself, and you come in here, and you go, Nobody's interrupting my conversations. I can sit and listen quiet. This is really wonderful. But I do want to get them back. So you go back and you take that sticker and they match up. This one belongs to me. And you collect your possession. You collect what already belongs to you. And Paul says the Spirit is given as that down payment, that pledge, that sticker, that mark, that seal. Because God will come and he will collect you because he loves his family. Paul says you're rich. Father, Son, Spirit all working to make you into a family for God. You are rich. So how do we respond to that? What's the proper way to apply this? Let me give you a couple ideas. So when you, uh, you see, see the word blessed, you go, okay, blessed. 
What do you normally think of? Right? What comes to your mind? Well, usually what you see is, I got a new car, I got a job, I graduated, uh, I'm healthy. Um, all these things are really good, and we should give thanks for them, right? But what's interesting is when Paul talks about all the riches and the blessings that heaven can offer, he doesn't list a single material thing, okay? which all are fine and they're good, but Paul says, by way of comparison, knowing that your debt of sin is completely removed and you've been chosen to be a part of the family of God, that is just so much better. Because even then, if you don't have perfect health, you have life forever, and you have meaning and purpose forever. So he doesn't even list those things. Not that they're, they're bad, they're good, but he says these things are far transcendent. These are the richest blessings that heaven has to offer you. So what do you do with those blessings? Well, first, Paul says, let's just start by praising God. I'm not going to talk about the suffering. I'm not going to talk about how hard it is in Ephesus. I just want to remind you that you should bless God or praise God. Can we just stop and praise God and say, God, thank you. I tend to forget when I'm in the midst of all of my busy stuff just to be grateful. God, thank you. But second, that we would become people who are like our Heavenly Father, would graciously share, right? Because when you get something that's really, really great and nice, and then you say, mine, it's called hoarding, and they make shows about you because you're that kind of person. He's mine, mine. No. This rich blessing in Jesus is given to be shared. And so we challenge ourselves. Lord, give us moments, give us opportunities to speak to those who are far from Jesus. We speak to those who know Jesus, but they need to follow him. Father, let us share the blessings we have. So the way I'd like to close uh, this morning is ask him to come up and sing uh, the doxology. We're going to sing it together, modern version. Uh, doxology is actually written in 1709. Did you know that the words of the first verse are actually the most frequently sung words in the English church? They praise God from whom all blessings flow. Father, Son, and Spirit working together to bring riches into our lives. And we just stop and say, God, thank you. Okay, so let's take a few moments and we're going to praise God, thank God together. Father, we praise you and we thank you. We have life in Jesus. We thank you that knowing him gives us meaning and purpose. I pray, Father, that we walk out of here encouraged, emboldened in our confidence that we belong to you and we can never be removed. And I pray, Father, that you'd stir up our hearts to be courageous in sharing this wonderful gift that we have in Jesus. Father, I pray that you continue to pour out your richest blessings upon this church in Jesus Christ and teach us to share that with others. In Christ's name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.